Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here with my comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to be bringing you this week's news roundup. As always, there's a lot of news in the world, so why don't we just get going? Derek, there was a recent presidential election in Kenya. What do we need to know about it and why? Yes. Right up front, I would like to say that with uh, Saudi Aramco having reported a $48 billion profit in the last fiscal quarter, if they're interested in sponsorship deals, our rates are surprisingly affordable. Uh, so give us a call if you're at, at, at Aramco. But yes, that aside, uh, there was a Kenyan uh, election last week uh, that took several days, took almost a full week, actually, to uh, finally release the official votes or the official vote tally. Uh, it turns out that Deputy President William Ruto has been uh, victorious. He uh, the official results have him uh, taking a little over or a little under, I should say, 50.5 percent of the vote. Uh, former prime minister and multiple time presidential candidate and loser Raylo Odinga took around 48.5 percent. Uh, as I say, the ballot count took quite a while, excessively long by by Kenyan standards. The there was a parallel media count that was supposed to be going on uh, at the same time as kind of a check on that process that froze over the weekend. In other words, there are uh, some irregularities here that have given uh, Odinga supporters cause to question. Uh, whether or not these results are legitimate. Odinga himself labeled the results a travesty on Tuesday. Uh, he is uh, intending to apparently take his case to the Kenyan Supreme Court. Uh, there were protests by his supporters in Nairobi and Kisumu uh, on Monday after the results were announced. They seem to have subsided, but I would say tension is uh, fairly high and the possibility that they could resume is is uh, kind of lingering. We are not going to accept and move on until Raila is the president. Raila is the president of the Republic of Kenya. We cannot accept Ruto's president. On top of that, four members of Kenya's electoral commission uh, came out on Monday after the official results were announced and essentially disavowed them. They said they were there were irregularities. Uh, I'm not sure how, you know, what, what sort of irregularities they're talking about. Uh, but they cited irregularities that uh, were ignored by the, the commission chair. Um, and and said they couldn't stand behind the results that were uh, were released. So um, there is another group called uh, another Kenyan group called the Elections Observation Group. On the other hand, that says that the final results of the election were consistent with their own projections. They they send poll watchers out basically to kind of do a a sample of uh, polling places around the country, and and they seem to think that these uh, this outcome with Ruto kind of eking out a victory uh, was consistent with what they expected. So um, you know it it may be that the count was indeed legitimate and that this is the the right outcome, but that still doesn't mean that there's not going to be trouble to come because uh, you know one side is not accepting the outcome. What's the broader implications of this? Or could you maybe just contextualize Kenya and what's going on there so our listeners who might not have been paying attention know why this election is important? Yeah, Kenya is um, something of a rock of stability, I guess, in in kind of uh, Eastern Africa. They contribute 
peacekeepers slash, you know, regional military forces to Somalia, for example, to deal with uh, Al-Shabaab. And, uh, you know, they, they take some blowback from that. You know, Al-Shabaab is, is fairly active, especially in northern Kenya. It does um, undertake attacks there. Um, so, you know, in a, in a region where, you know, Ethiopia is constantly at war with some faction within the country and uh, seems to be on the verge of, uh, you know, full-blown civil war at any given time, where Somalia is, of course, a complete uh, failed state at this point for Kenya to kind of devolve into post-election violence. And if that were to get more serious, there's, there've been cases of post-election kind of protesting and, and that sort of thing uh, in Kenya previously. But if that were to get more serious, it would be a, uh, not a great thing from a, from a regional perspective. Let's stick on elections and talk about the UK prime minister poll and what that augurs. So, yeah, this is just briefly, uh, there was a poll, if you've been following the race to uh, succeed uh, Boris Johnson, friend of the pod, uh, there was a new poll by Opinion, Opinion, Opinionium Research. I don't, I don't get it, but that's the name. Opinium Research, Opinium Research, sorry, I'm like uh, having a hard time here, uh, showed UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, uh, who's one of the two candidates remaining in this race with a 22-point lead. This poll was just released this week uh, over the former chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. Uh, she's got 61% support among conservative party members who are voting by, you know, kind of secret mail, mail-in ballot, I believe, this month to Sunak's 39%. Uh, the results of this election will be announced in early September. So this is a month-long process. Uh, but it certainly seems like trust, I mean, she's outpolled Sunak at, at every turn in this uh, race. So it certainly seems like she will be uh, the next leader of the conservative party and therefore the next prime minister of the UK. Uh, interestingly, um, over 60% of party members would rather Johnson just stick around than either of these two take his place. I think it was 63% in the case of Truss and 68% in the case of Sunak uh, would rather just have have the Bojo show continue. And who can blame them? It's more entertaining than uh, whatever they're likely to get. Speaking of prime ministers, let's talk for 30, 35 minutes about Santa Marin's party. Derek, what do yes, you think of it's it? It's a disgrace. She should be, uh, <laughs> you know, she should be removed from office and and uh, made to be put in the stocks in the town square and whatever town you know they they decide to do. Maybe they could do, do a like traveling show where she's just uh, pilloried with tomatoes and and eggs and things for for having a social life. I think we should try to get her on the pod, Jake, and keep this in. Let's get her on the pod. Could you reach out to Santa Marin's <laughs> people? It's a fellow millennial. I think she's my exact age, so we'd have a lot to talk about. I think you should get her on the pod. I think Jake. there's no reason why that that shouldn't happen. Yeah, I think it's 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 obvious for and, her. And the Aramco deal, we'll Jake. Her. See if you see if you can make the Aramco thing happen. <laughs> Uh, so let's turn to Ukraine. And uh, Derek, there's a few updates there our listeners should be aware of. Yes. So uh, there are two things to talk about here. There's the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant uh, in kind of southeastern Ukraine. Uh, and there is the um, continuing kind of you know, series of attacks that have been taking place, apparently attacks in Crimea. Um, first on the, the nuclear plant, this is, of course, Zaporizhia is controlled by Russian forces, uh, but it's right on the front line. So, I mean, literally like across the river, you know, it's territory that's still under under Ukrainian control. And there's a lot of 
clash along that front line, as you might expect. Some of it has spilled over or maybe intentionally targeted. Who knows? Uh, the nuclear plant, the Ukrainians and the Russians have bl- been blaming each other for uh, what seems like a bad idea. Zaporizhia is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. A disaster there, even though the chances of a disaster following from like a stray rocket or a stray artillery shell or something like that are fairly small. They're still high enough that you would think people would not want to be fighting in the immediate vicinity of that that facility. Uh, so the, the Ukrainians and Russians have been kind of trading blame for this. The Ukrainians uh, say they're not shelling the facilities. They, they've, they've kind of... Uh, jump between accusing the Russians of deliberately shelling a facility that's under their already under their control for reasons that I don't totally understand, uh, and uh, accusing the Russians of stationing, and this is probably more realistic, of stationing their own artillery on the grounds of the plant, thinking that they could deter the Ukrainians from responding to uh, artillery attacks by making by setting up this this potential catastrophe. In Zaporizhia, they're training for a crisis which some fear could be more serious than the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, the worst ever. Uh, so there are continuing concerns about this. The UN and the International it's an International Atomic Energy Agency uh, have been proposing an inspection of the facility to make sure everything's still operating. Okay, there's been some reports of damage, nothing serious, but still you, you wouldn't mind seeing an IAEA team come in and inspect. Uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry on Monday uh, offered to you know do whatever it takes to make sure that IAEA inspectors can get to the plant and, and get their job done. But they said you know, it would be a bad idea for them to try to get to Zaporizhia by going through Kiev, going basically through Ukrainian territory. Uh, I, I don't think the IAEA or the UN will be would be particularly amenable to coming at the plant through Russian territory because that could be taken as sort of a, a, a the the UN kind of um, what do I say here like legitimizing Russia's territorial gains in in Ukraine and I doubt that they would be interested in in doing something like that so a um, little bit of gamesmanship going on here the Russians now say they just said on Thursday that they could uh, they might shut the reactor down uh, that that seems like a bad idea too. I mean, the Russians have a lot of experience running nuclear power plants, so I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, a horrible idea, but, but it doesn't seem like a great idea to me either. I'm admittedly a layperson, uh, but you know, you could have, uh, you know, if you shut the plant down, that affects uh, what what happens to the spent waste and what happens to sort of the cooling facilities. And I, I don't know. I'm not. Not sure that's a great idea. On you heard it here first. Uh, folks. Yeah, Derek, really. Think uh, not, you should not, cut shut down the plant. <laughs> don't think that that we should be doing that. I think we should be, you know, kind of establishing some kind of demilitarized zone around this plant. But uh, the Russians are hesitant to do that. The the UN, I think, has proposed that, but uh, they've had some some issues with that idea. In Crimea, um, people may remember from folks may remember from last week there was a. Uh, an incident at a Russian airbase in Crimea where no, there were a number of explosions. Uh, the Russians blamed this on uh, uh, ammunition storage, kind of uh, accidentally exploding, whatever. Uh, but satellite imagery and, and uh, satellite imagery re- suggested that it was man-made, that it was a you know human-caused intentional attack of some kind, whether uh, by kind of saboteurs or drones or artillery. It's unclear. Uh, well, there were two more attacks 
in Crimea on Tuesday targeting Russian arms depots or Russian bases uh, with arms depots. One in northern Crimea, one apparently in central Crimea. I uh, have less information on that second attack. Um, but this now clearly seems to be, these attacks clearly seem to be the work of some sort of team, whether it's kind of partisans who are you know, kind of paramilitaries that have formed up in Crimea or the Ukrainians have gotten special forces into Crimea. Anyway, the Russian, even the Russian military now after Tuesday's incidents is uh, blaming Ukrainian saboteurs uh, for uh, these attacks. Uh, The Ukrainians continue to kind of play cutesy here. They, they deny doing it. They deny carrying out these attacks, but say things like, you know, there are probably going to be more of these attacks in the future, which is, uh, you know, essentially a, a, an admission. Um, Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov told the Washington Post uh, on Wednesday, in a piece that was released on Wednesday anyway, that this may be the way that Ukraine fights the war moving forward, which is an admission that these plans to do like a full-scale counteroffensive in southern Ukraine, just they just don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, so instead, they're going to take, you know, ca- try to carry out these attacks behind the lines to hit Russian supplies, hit Russian bases, depots, etc. Uh, the Russians, in response to this, replaced the commander of their Black Sea fleet on Wednesday. Um, that uh, Admiral Igor Osipov uh, has not had a, a banner time here in the war. If you remember, he also oversaw the sinking of the Moskva, the Russian Black Sea flagship, early on in the conflict. Uh, so it's not terribly surprising that he's lost his job. Uh, they also say, and this is coming from the Russian administration of Crimea, uh, that they'd taken down a cell of Islamist terrorists uh, connected to the Hizbut Tahrir network, which is sort of an Islamist political uh, network. It's international. It's banned in most countries because of uh, implications or links to to violence. Uh, I, I don't know how credible this is. I mean, you could imagine, I guess, like a, a Crimean Tatar group uh, involved with Hizbut Tahrir that uh, was starting, it was carrying out these attacks. The, the Tatars uh, not a huge fan of Russian uh, control of Crimea. Uh, but I, I don't know uh, how much weight to put on that. Hey everyone, it's producer Jake. I just want to plug our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for our free list or become a paid subscriber, which gets you access to our bonus interviews, special episodes, weekend history mini episodes, and more. That's AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. Let's move over to Iran and the developments in the JCPOA discussions. Yes, so uh, the Iranian government issued its response to the European Union, what the European Union had called its final text uh, of an agreement to revive the JCPOA. Uh, the Iranians gave gave that response Monday evening. Uh, I haven't seen any indication of what is in that response or what they said. Uh, the EU has said it's studying it, but it hasn't, you know, nobody in the EU has gone into any detail. Uh, I'm guessing that they didn't quite accept it as is, but there are indications if you look at um, you know, there are a couple of places to go to for Iranian kind of media kind of translated into English and uh, for Western audiences. Uh, one of them is called Amwaj Media. The other is uh, the, the National Iranian American Council's Iran Unfiltered website. Both of those have been indicating lately that there is some kind of, uh, I don't know, preparation, it sounds like, going on uh, among, you know, members of 
Ebrahim Raisi's government uh, to kind of lay the groundwork for their base in particular, which is quite hardline, quite conservative, uh, opposed to really any interaction with the U.S. in, in you know, around the nuclear deal or anything else, uh, to kind of prepare them for some degree of Iranian compromise. So the Iranians are, you know, will, will likely have have relaxed some of their demands. Now, the two demands that I know of, uh, again, I don't know what they might have relaxed, but the two demands I know of are they've been demanding assurances that the U.S. won't pull out again, uh, which politically the Biden administration can't really offer. Uh, and they've been demanding that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps be taken off the U.S. foreign terrorist organization list. There are a couple of ways this could go. One is uh, the Iranians could seek let's say, penalties or, or recompense in some way if the U.S. pulls out rather than a guarantee. So some way to kind of, you know, make sure Iran gets some benefit here, even if the U.S. pulls out, there's something that they uh, they get out of it. I don't know what that would be. Uh, and on the the IRGC, there is a path here to leaving the IRGC itself on the the foreign terrorist organization list, but taking off uh, some or all of the companies that the IRGC either owns or, uh, you know, that the, the IRGC kind of works with when it does contracting work. It does a lot of construction and, uh, you know, really has a, a large economic role in Iran. So you could take the companies off and maybe minimize uh, the sanctions impact in that way. I don't know. But uh, those are just a couple possibilities. I don't know if this is what the Iranians have offered. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But it, it sounds like, you know, maybe there could be some movement here. So, Derek, you think there's a chance this thing might actually be saved? Uh, I, I actually am a little more optimistic this week than I have been for quite some time because, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, it's uh, it sounds like the ball is in the Biden administration's court now. And the question is, you know, what how willing are they going to be to take the political hit that they'll take from from redoing the deal, from reviving the deal, and from whatever agreement they make with Iran? Because there will be a, a cost. They will be criticized uh, in Congress. They will take some, you know, there will be some columnist somewhere that, that uh, you know, the Biden administration wants to be nice to them who will write a mean thing about them. I don't know if they're prepared to accept that or not. We'll have to see. So let's turn to our final topic, and that's uh, President Joseph Robin Biden's decision not to release the Afghan central bank funds. Yeah, this was in the Wall Street Journal uh, on Monday. Uh, the Biden administration has apparently decided after the drone strike that killed Ayman Azawahiri in Kabul that it will not be releasing. It had been planning to release half of the $7 billion it uh, froze or essentially pillaged in foreign currency reserves from the Afghan Central Bank. It had been planning to release half of that to support humanitarian relief and maybe some portion of it to partially recapitalize the central bank. It's now not going to do that, at least not for the foreseeable future. The claim from the Biden administration is that having discovered Zawahiri living, uh, you know, hale and hearty in, in Kabul uh, in a guest house or next to a guest house, I think it was owned by uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, who's the interior minister in the, the Afghan government. They're now convinced that the, the Afghan government, the Taliban, effectively, is back in the business of supporting al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups, and they don't want any risk that that money will go to terrorist groups. This is the rationale. My argument would be, this is the Afghan people's money. It, no, the United States had no business claiming it in the first place. Um, and, and really, the, the sort of 
just kind of petty cruelty of this decision is is shocking. It's collective punishment, uh, which is always you know something that we decry when it some other country does it because it's uh, you know it goes against the rules based order. Um, we're at I, the the one year anniversary of the Taliban's takeover. There was a, a piece in Axios of all places, kind of relaying the dismal economic situation in Afghanistan that that said correctly that uh, much of that is bl- can be blamed on the United States on U.S. sanctions on this decision to uh, freeze the foreign currency reserves. Uh, Ryan Cooper wrote a piece in the American Prospect, very fairly you know excoriating piece about this decision. He called it foolish and barbaric. Uh, will cause said it will cause terrible suffering. I think that's all correct, um, and it's it's really um, you know just uh, unconscionable to me to 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 do this um, under any circumstances. That never should have been the, the, these funds never should have been frozen in the first place. Let alone to kind of dither around about them now because you don't like what the Afghan government is doing. Well, on that happy note, Derek Davison, thank you so much. And Prestige Heads, please enjoy this week's bonus interview with the great Daniel Amervar. Bye, Derek. Bye. Bye.